academic medical centers throughout the United States are currently examining their role in perpetuating structural racism, including grappling with how to address racial inequities in healthcare within their own environment. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michelle Morse, an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and co-founder of the organization Equal Health. Dr. Morse has co-authored a perspective article about efforts to address institutional racism at an academic medical center. Dr. Morse, in your perspective article, you describe an initiative at Brigham and Women's Hospital that began in 2016 after the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philander Castile. Was it that your colleagues' response to those deaths was different from past responses, or how did you see that as being the right time to reinvigorate the process of recognizing racism within the hospital environment and addressing it? I think what's really, really clear, particularly looking back now with our 2020 lens to what was happening several years ago, what is more and more clear to me is that it was the national and global call for justice coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement that really created the conditions for a new kind of conversation within our walls. And at the time, again, particularly in 2016 for our institution, there was a real wave of energy amongst residents, students, faculty, staff. There was no sector of our hospital that wasn't feeling the pain and finding new ways to build their own consciousness about racism because of um, the murders were of people like Orlando Castile and Alton Sterling, as I mentioned in the summer of 2016. So it was truly an unavoidable conversation. And for us, those conditions, unfortunately, were created because of these very visible and appalling murders. You write in your article that the Health Equity Committee at Brigham and Women's partnered with both the local community health center and with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement to explore and address issues related to institutional racism. Why were those relationships important? Is that an approach that other medical centers could consider? I think looking back, it makes total sense. When we were at the crossroads of trying to develop strategies and tactics for how we were going to address issues of structural racism within our walls as a reflection of what was happening at the level of society, it wasn't as clear as it is now. But for us, one of the reasons to partner with Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center was that it's already a health center in the network of hospitals for Brigham and Women. And the health center in particular has been a national leader in integrating racial justice and healthcare through a variety of programs at the community level, one of the most prominent being their racial reconciliation programs, as well as partnerships that they had with the Boston Public Health Commission around bringing anti-racism into the Public Health Commission's work as well. So for us, it was really important to recognize that we actually did not have all of the expertise, experience, and leadership we needed within the walls of Brigham to really go deeper into what structural racism is and how it's operating at our hospital. And so we really needed to look to leading organizations, leading institutions that have been doing that work for far longer. And so that's why Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center was so critical. In addition, in terms of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, that partnership was critical for us because the Institute for Healthcare Improvement had decided to launch a learning collaborative called Pursuing Equity. And that was of interest because what IHI was trying to do was look at, well, what are some of the best practices and struggles and challenges of clinics and hospitals across the country who are really trying to advance health equity 
within their approaches, their strategies, their mission, et cetera. And so we felt that that was a great community for learning for us. It was also a great opportunity for us to really problem solve and have a bit of a brain trust because these issues have been around for literally hundreds of years. And one of the things that's really important to remember is that only the most recent 13% of American history is in the post-slavery, post-Jim Crow era. So we're actually very new to not having racism on the books in our laws. In fact, we are in this era right now of what we would call structural racism, precisely because we still haven't figured out how to make sure that we go beyond kind of the legal civil rights framework to ensure the economic, social, health, educational, and other equity principles that are enshrined in law, but not in practice in our country. So both of those partnerships really helped us to get to a place where we were covering a lot of bases and really holding ourselves accountable as well and being pushed to do even more and do it even better. So given all of that, what kinds of obstacles or pushback did you face when it came to naming racism and recognizing the ways in which it existed at your institution? And honestly, that is where our learning intensified and accelerated was when we were challenged about what we were trying to do. I think one of the most important examples of the pushback that we got was looking at the data that we reviewed in our heart failure project, which uh, we mentioned in the piece. We got a lot of pushback that, well, if you correct for disease severity, if you correct for substance use, if you correct for these other things, then there really shouldn't be any racial difference between which patients with heart failure end up on the general medicine service as opposed to the cardiology service. And so there were a lot of myths that folks used and data analyses that folks wanted to do to try to explain away the fact that there was a clear racial inequity. And I think what was also critically important was that this analysis that we did of heart failure patients, again, because heart failure is uh, really the number one <laughs> diagnosis at Brigham, I think folks tried to explain it away, uh, but we found that in addition to racial inequities in how patients were triaged, there were gender and other inequities as well. And so I think that by using a racial justice framework, we were able to clearly explain that this is not a data blip and it can't be corrected away. It's real. And we had to do that, though, with very rigorous data and statistical analysis ourselves. And we had to really take it to another level in addition to having the rigorous statistical and data analysis component, we had to be able to talk about what we found in a way that made sense to people. And that was one of the biggest challenges and another area of resistance that we faced. Even for the folks who agreed with the statistics and the data, they said, well, that's not racism. And a lot of faculty members in particular were very hesitant to call this an example of institutional racism. We still to this day have faculty who don't necessarily see it as that. And that's natural because this country has for so long denied the existence of structural racism. And in fact, Ibram X. Kendi, who's someone who I always look to for leadership and guidance as a thought leader in this area, talks about the fact that the heartbeat of racism is denial. But we were really able, especially using the frameworks from Dr. Kamara Jones, who describe structural racism in terms that are accessible and that are 
I think, really tailored to a medical and clinical audience. We were really able to help faculty and other folks alike understand that there's no greater example, unfortunately, of structural racism in it, and that this heart failure study really proved that within our walls, this was happening and showed that there's really no space in America in particular that is immune from the effects of structural racism. So you say in your article that the next frontier beyond that sort of analysis and action is to look at structural and policy change at the institutional level. What's that process going to look like? How's change going to happen there? This is the hardest part. It's just like the mantra, mountains beyond mountains, which I use as an allegory all the time, having myself lived in Haiti and worked in Haiti for many years through Equal Health and Partners in Health. We thought that this first phase was difficult, and I think the next phase is even more challenging. I think one of the tools that will be really useful for us is the racial equity impact assessment, because what we constantly have to remind ourselves of is that we're not the first institution to try to do this. There are generations of scholars who've tried to do this work at institutions across the country and around the world, and that we need to be looking to those examples and models of success. And the racial equity impact analysis is essentially a framework and a tool that has been put out there by the organization Race Forward to really assess the impact of a policy with a racial equity lens. So if there's a new policy being considered, say, around admission criteria for a service, What you do is essentially follow this stepwise analysis to say, well, what would be the impact on uh, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and people of color of this policy? Because what's true often is that the impact of these policies is predictable, and that impact may disproportionately advantage or disadvantage Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And to know that ahead of time and then be able to adjust before a new policy is implemented is incredibly powerful. Now, what also needs to happen, and this is part of what's happening in the efforts that have been funded by the Department of Medicine to really better understand and fix the inequity in how heart failure patients are triaged either to general medicine or to cardiology, is to also look at current policies on the books and understand how is this policy either facilitating or alleviating racial inequities? And because hospitals obviously are institutions that have long histories and lots of policies, as well as lots of regulations and lots of federal level oversight, as well as state and local oversight, this is a behemoth of a task to really look at what are the most important policies to consider and review using the racial equity impact assessment. And then when we find a policy, that does have a disproportionate negative impact for racial communities that are communities of color in particular, what do we do about it? And what process do we have to do that? My colleague, um, Karthik uh, Shrivasunder at Brigham is specifically also looking at how can we integrate racial justice into quality improvement? And I think it's important to consider that for many reasons, but one of the most important reasons, of course, is that that's a space where we can rapidly change policy and really use quality improvement infrastructure to advance that work and really bring racial equity and health equity into our quality improvement work. And my mantra that I have put forward is that health inequity is a patient safety emergency, and it should be considered as such, and we should be acting in a way that reflects the urgency 
of these inequities. We're doing harm to patients and, and we would never allow that. So we've got to really urgently integrate those things. And it's another important reason why our partnership with IHI was so critical because they really helped us to think about, well, what can we use and build upon in terms of the patient safety movement and quality improvement movement to be able to bring in racial justice and health equity into that platform. So I would say this is a much more unpredictable phase, but I think that the policy component of both reviewing current policies and evaluating newly proposed policies going forward with a racial equity lens is really never-ending work in so many ways and, again, has to be uh, rigorous and highly prioritized at the institution to be able to do it because it, it is daunting. And the last thing I'll just say about the policy piece is that I think it's a really important time for us to also consider the fact that we really need to be having conversations with communities of color, particularly Black and Latinx communities and Indigenous communities, about what all this means. And the reason I mention that is because many institutions, including Mass General Brigham, are ending their practice of using a race corrector in their calculation of EGFR and kidney function. And that is a really exciting development that has come out of this wave of faculty, staff, and residents looking at racial justice and health equity. But what also needs to happen, in addition to changing that practice at a laboratory and nephrology division level, there also needs to be a conversation with Black communities in particular to say, well, this is the practice, and this is what we think, unfortunately, may have come from this practice over the years. And here's how we're changing, and here's how we plan to keep you as the Black community involved in the conversations about how we actually address and look at opportunities for restitution for the harm that has happened from this kind of practice of bringing inappropriate use of race into clinical algorithms. So I expect that to be a really important point and part of the ongoing policy change work that needs to happen for us to achieve racial justice. Finally, and in that regard, you write in your article that for physicians, clinical training has the potential to create a mindset that directly conflicts with the visions espoused by the social movements we're seeing today. So how can individual clinicians move beyond that mindset to work toward change at their institutions? That to me was honestly the area of most learning for me personally as a physician involved in this work. I think oftentimes clinicians, we're told that we are the expert and that the buck stops with us. And our medical system has been constructed around that expert identity. And on the one hand, of course, you want your nurse or your physician to be an expert and to know as much as they possibly can. At the same time, we have got to be more humble. And one of the most important ways to humble ourselves is to recognize that if we are really seeking true social and structural change to address the root causes of health inequities, we cannot do that work alone or in our clinic or hospital silos. And too often, that's what happens. So instead of building an alternative nexus of power with the communities that we serve, what we unfortunately often do is have conversations amongst ourselves. And again, that's an unfortunate part of the culture of medicine. And we forget that there are community-based organizations and community organizers who have built people power to make the bigger picture social and structural change possible. And by not working directly in cohort and in coalition with them, 
we unfortunately can undermine the very social movements that could bring the change that we seek without even realizing it. And I think that's the hardest part. It's very easy to be siloed in our clinical spaces and not recognize that we could go much further as clinicians who seek social change by actually working in coalition with the communities we serve and the community organizers in those communities. So my hope for folks reading this article would be that they actually think about what that means for them in, as an individual, because sometimes it just has to start with you. And for us to all do that critical self-reflection and work of humbling ourselves to really step back and say, how could I be doing this work more effectively in coordination with and in support of the communities I serve and the community organizers that are doing the broader change work. Thank you, Dr. Morse.